Hi, this is Ben Lowell, and this is Back to the Bible Canada with Dr. John Newfeld. Well, we're continuing our series today, Passion. So turning your Bibles to John chapter 12, verses 27 to 36, as Dr. Newfeld brings us a message entitled, The Power of the Cross. There is in any faithful retelling of the story of Jesus' crucifixion the the need to tell of the tension between the messianic expectation of the crowds and the mission of Jesus. See, on the one hand, on that Palm Sunday, there were the crowds. They were waving palm branches, a sign of Israel's nationalistic hopes and dreams. And on the other hand, there was Jesus riding on a donkey's colt, preparing to make his way to what he knew would end in his crucifixion. One side wanted a throne, the other a cross. Or I might put it this way. One side wanted a throne without a cross. The other knew that there would be no throne if there should be no cross. One side cheered wildly and the other, well, the one who was the object of their cheers, confessed that his soul was in turmoil. It's an amazing picture. It's this picture of our Savior on the way to the cross. Our study in John 12 to 14 is now taken up in John 12, 27 to 36. So let's read our passage. Now is my soul troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour, but for this purpose I have come to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Then a voice came from heaven, I have glorified it, and I will glorify it again. The crowd that stood there and heard it said that it had thundered. Others said an angel has spoken to him. Jesus answered, The voice has come for your sake, not mine. Now is the judgment of this world. Now will the ruler of this world be cast out. And I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. He said this to show by what kind of death he was going to die. So the crowd answered him, We have heard from the law that the Christ remains forever. How can you say that the Son of Man must be lifted up? Who is this Son of Man? So Jesus said to them, The light is among you for a little while longer. Walk while you have the light, lest darkness overtake you. The one who walks in the darkness does not know where he is going. While you have the light, believe in the light, that you may become sons of the light. We are helped to notice that immediately after Jesus had said these words, many simply did not believe in him. And no doubt, the unbelievers John had in mind in the latter part of John 12, are surely those who didn't believe he was the Messiah. And yet, well, you've got to wonder about those who did believe. They're the ones whose messianic hope will not tolerate or leave room for the fulfillment of Isaiah 53. See, the reason why John includes this part of the text is because he wants us to see the centrality and the power of the cross. And even for us who have heard this story of the cross so many times before, remember, that John is written so that you might believe. You know, it might be that there are still so many aspects of the cross that you struggle with, and maybe you didn't even know it. So pay attention, and we're going to enter more fully into the meaning and power of the cross. The passage we've just read is easily divided into three parts. Part one is the prayer of Jesus. Part two is the effect of Jesus' prayer, in which we'll see how the prayer was being answered. And part three is the confusion of the crowd and Jesus' answer to overcome their confusion. So let's start with part one, the prayer of Jesus. Let's reread verse 27 and 28. Now is my soul troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour, but for this purpose I have come to this hour. Father, glorify your name. 
So let's start with the beginning, the confession that Jesus' soul is troubled. You know, the Greek word means to be stirred up or to be unsettled. In the Greek translation of the First Testament, that word is found in some of the Psalms of David, Psalm 6, verse 3. My soul is also greatly troubled, but you, O Lord, how long? You see, in that psalm, David is at the point of death. His his enemies are seeking to kill him, and he's been praying to God, and it seems that God is not acting quickly. And in response, David says that his soul is unsettled. Or look at Psalm 42, verse 11. Why are you cast down, O my soul, and why are you in, here's our word, in turmoil within me? That's another word for troubled, turmoil even heartfelt unrest. I know that there are some who are surprised that we should see that kind of an emotion in Jesus. Well, you're not alone if you feel that way. See, some commentators find this idea hard to imagine. I mean, after all, I mean, Jesus has already announced that he's going to the cross and he's committed to fulfilling the Father's plan. I mean, shouldn't there be peace in his heart? I mean, not turmoil. And to make it even more perplexing, we find that the actual Greek verbal tense points to a continuous state of turmoil. That means he was not just in turmoil at one moment, it was ongoing. My soul says Jesus is in constant turmoil. So why? Well, we have to consider our options. Since we know he's not praying for God to save him from the suffering, then why is he so distraught? So I think we do well here to remember that when Jesus hung on the cross, he would pray the words of Psalm 22, verse 1. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And Jesus knew that in just a little while, he would hang on the cross and he would be forsaken by God. Furthermore, we do well to remember 2 Corinthians 5, 21. He made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf. Or we might well remember the words of Galatians 3, 13. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. Or consider the words of Isaiah the prophet, Isaiah 53, verse 4. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. Or we might remember Jesus' words in Gethsemane, in which he was called upon to drink the cup, which in the Old Testament is always the cup of the Lord's wrath. See, for Jesus... The cross was so much more than physical suffering. It was to be forsaken by God. It was to be made sin on our behalf, to accept the curse of the law for all of our sins, to be stricken, smitten, and afflicted, not by men, but by God, to drink the cup of the Lord's anger, his wrath for the sins of the world. I know there are those who argue that the Father would never have treated the Son in that fashion, but if you argue that, You simply have to argue the scripture is untrue, that the promise of God has fallen to the ground. But Jesus doesn't have our modern sensibilities. He's he's a man of scripture. He knew what the Father had called him to do. He was to suffer the curse for our sin. He was to be crushed by the Father so that we could be free. And this, no doubt, is why his soul is in constant turmoil. And so what is it that he should now say to the Father? I mean, should he pray, Father, save me from this hour? It's an an interesting question because as I've seen it and as I've thought about it, you know, both in my own praying and, and as I've listened to the prayers of others, almost all the things that we pray start with, Father, save me from this hour. You know, I have for many years received, you know, prayer lists 
and prayed for, I don't know, countless people. And almost all of the things that I've heard people ask for prayer is always, Father, save me from this hour. It's, you know, illness, it's financial problems, it's tension in my family, it's maybe a major reversal of some sort, but the prayers are always the same. Father, save me from this hour. So please don't hear me condescending at such prayers. When we ask ourselves, what should we pray about? The answer is, you know, pray about everything. And that has to be prayers that start with, Father, save me from this hour. But is that all that we pray for? And as I've examined the matter, here's what's missing in, in most of our prayers, seeking the will of God. And here I don't mean, Lord, show me who I'm supposed to marry. Rather, we should be seeking the revealed and known will of God. For instance, 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 3, for this is the will of God, our sanctification, that you abstain from sexual immorality. That's the known will of God. 1 Thessalonians 5.18, give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. See, in prayer meetings, how often have we ever heard people pray, my sanctification, O Lord, I pray for that. I pray that I would give thanks in all circumstances. I pray that I would not be ashamed of the gospel. I pray that God would be glorified in my illnesses. These things, things we know are in the will of God, are often so strangely absent from so much of our praying. So Jesus says, you know, what shall I say? Shall I say, save me from this hour? And then he responds, no, because he already knows the revealed will of God. And for this reason, I came to this hour, he says. Here we see Jesus testifying that his purpose in coming to earth was finally reaching its fruition. He had come to earth to suffer on a cross, to be our sin bearer. He had come to bear the curse of the law for our transgression. He had come to be forsaken by the Father so that we would no longer be forsaken by the Father. And so then, if Jesus knows this to be the will of God, what then should he pray? Listen, he prays, Father, glorify your name. May your name be venerated and exalted and highly thought of and spoken of everywhere. Father, demonstrate and express to all the world just how great you are in this, my sacrifice on the cross. Laugh Again, a ministry resource of Back to the Bible Canada, has had a profound impact on so many lives. In five brief minutes a day, Phil Calloway, through his special gifts of encouragement and humor, has opened doors to people hearing about the gospel or simply finding hope in difficult times. So many notes and emails of deep appreciation have been received. Well, Laugh Again is expanding its programming with Laugh Again TV. That's right, Laugh Again will be using one of the most viewed resources, YouTube, to present Laugh Again Take 5, five-minute videos produced to reach a huge audience with a unique message of hope and joy found in Christ. So check out the Laugh Again TV YouTube channel and subscribe so you never risk missing an episode. And remember, tell a friend. For more information or to support the ministries of Laugh Again, call 1-800-663-2425 or visit laughagain.ca. There are only three times when the voice of the Father actually spoke during the ministry of Jesus. You know, the first time was at his baptism. 
You remember the father said, this is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. And then the second time was at the transfiguration where God said something very similar. This is my beloved son with whom I'm well pleased. But then he adds, listen to him. And then there is this, the third occasion, verse 28. Then a voice came from heaven. I have glorified it and I will glorify it again. You know, that phrase is punctiliar. It's speaking of a singular moment. I have glorified it. That is, I have glorified my name in the ministry of my son and in his perfect obedience. And I promise, that's future now, I will glorify my name again. And here, of course, he means very specifically in the cross. You know, it's important for us to hear that. Yeah, The father poured out his wrath on his son on the cross. But here also is a word from the father. Even though the son should suffer under my wrath for the sins of the world, even then, or shall we say, especially then, the son will never stop being the object of my full delight. Indeed, I am glorified by the son's submission to death, even death on a cross. And then the response, verse 29 to 30, the crowd that stood there and heard it said that it had thundered. And others said, you know, an angel has spoken to him. Jesus answered, this voice has come for your sake, not mine. I find this fascinating. Even this matter of the voice of God speaking is met with varying interpretations. Some said, you know, it's just thunder. It sounds like words. And others said it was an angel. And given this response, first to the prayer of Jesus and then the response of the Father, Jesus now has three important things to say about the meaning of the cross. We come now to the second section of our passage, verses 31 and 32. Now is the judgment of this world. Now will the ruler of this world be cast out. And I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. See, Jesus says three things. And the first thing he says is, now is the judgment of the world. Does that sound strange to you? I think he should have said, now is the salvation of the world, but instead, now is the judgment of the world? How so? Well, the answer must be that the cross demonstrates just how serious are the sins of the world. The sins of the world are demonstrated in the sufferings of the cross. This is what our sins deserve. The second thing that Jesus says about the cross is, now will the ruler of this world be cast out. You know, that's in keeping with what Paul would say later in Colossians 2.15, you know, that God triumphed over all the dark hosts of Satan in the cross of his son. You know, as Jesus purchased men and women for God on the cross, Satan lost his grip on those very same people. And that's not all that Jesus said about his cross. He said that the ruler of this world would now be cast out. Well, how so? Well, compare those words in John 12.31 with the words later recorded in Revelation 12, verse 10. And I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, Now the salvation and power and kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come, watch this, for the accuser of our brothers has been thrown down, who accuses them day and night before our God. So you might think about the time of Job. Satan seems to then have had access before the throne, bringing accusations against God's people. But now... By Christ's death on the cross, we have a strong defense against the accuser. Through the cross of Christ, Satan now has no access to accuse us before the throne of God. He's been thrown down. He's been humiliated at the cross. You know, just a side note, 
This is why the chief priests and the scribes and the religious leaders mocked Jesus so fiercely on the cross. You remember, they were taunting him. They were saying, come down from that cross if you're the son of God. Well, all of that taunting was inspired by Satan himself, who desperately wanted Jesus to come down from the cross, for he knew that if Jesus died on that cross, he would be defeated and subjected to cosmic and eternal humiliation. And so Jesus says, there are three answers to my prayer that God would be glorified in the cross. The first is that the cross will showcase God's assessment, his righteousness against the sins of the world. And second, the cross will be Satan's ultimate defeat and humiliation. And now third, verse 32, and I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. That, of course, is a reference to Numbers 21. You know, because of Israel's sins, God had sent poisonous snakes among the people and many of them had died. And in desperation, Moses prays for the people. And in response, God had told Moses to make a bronze depiction of a snake and put it on a pole so that anyone who looked on that serpent would live. Bitten by sin, suffering the consequence of death, Jesus is depicted as hanging on a cross just like that bronze serpent on a pole. Look to the cross and live. If I am placed on a cross, said Jesus, I will draw all people to myself. And by the way, if you're wondering what all means, I think the great 5th century preacher John Chrysostom said it very well. He said all refers to people from all races and languages and tribes and tongues. Nail me to the cross, said Jesus, and I will draw men and women from across the globe. What a thought. Put it another way. If you want to reach people for Christ, make sure You preach Christ and him crucified. Make much of the sacrifice on the cross. Explain that without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. Explain that sin is so evil, so so vile, so vulgar, it costs the very life of the Son of God. But then hasten to explain that God so loved the world that he gave his Son to die on the cross in our stead, to suffer, to be broken, and to take upon himself your sin so that you might go free. And of course, explain how the Father is glorified in the suffering and death of his Son, and you'll draw men and women to Christ. Make the cross the central message in your ministry. Emphasize the cross. Express the beauty of the cross. Explain the cross. Showcase the cross. Offer the cross to the people who hear you, and watch what God does. Tell the story of the cross exactly the way the Bible does. And I'll say this, you know, wherever the cross has been de-emphasized in the life of the church, the church has then lost her power to draw people and sinks into irrelevance. Do you hear that? When the church tries to be relevant on her own, she becomes deeply irrelevant. When the church highlights the cross, men and women from all the tribes of the earth press in to know Jesus. Now then, having prayed that God would be glorified, and then having been assured that God would be glorified, we go on then to the confusion of the crowds, verse 34. So the crowd answered him, we have heard from the law that the Christ remains forever. How can you say that the Son of Man must be lifted up? Who is this Son of Man? And we notice that the crowd is understood more than we think. I mean, they must have suspected that Jesus had been talking about his death, and they protest. You know, perhaps some of them were thinking about 2 Samuel 7, 13, where God promised that the kingdom of the Messiah would be forever. Or maybe they were thinking about Psalm 89, verse 4, 
the throne of David would stand for all generations. Or Isaiah 9, verse 7, we're told that the increase of his government and peace, there will be no end. Or perhaps even Daniel 7, 13 and 14, where the Son of Man approaches the Ancient of Days and is given a dominion over all nations, which is everlasting. Then based on that last Son of Man passage from Daniel, the crowd's confused. If Jesus says he's the Son of Man, and if the prophecy from Daniel and other places says the Son of Man will be given an everlasting throne, then, you know, if Jesus is now speaking about his death and he's calling himself the Son of Man, well, you get the confusion. Now, it's clear that all the answers to their questions about how the cross figures into God's eternal plans, well, that's going to become plain later. You know, Jesus will rise from the dead. And there will be an ironclad assurance that all the future promises will be fulfilled. But if he had to explain all those things at this moment, I, I suspect the crowd would have been even further confused. So instead of explaining it all, Jesus simply does a shortcut. The light, he says, will only be with you a short time longer. He means that his crucifixion is now near. But then without explaining anything further, he simply says, believe in the light that you may become the sons of the light. That's a very serious matter. You know, this talk about the cross is not the kind of conversation that is meant for a philosophy class or some kind of a session where you talk about everything in a local coffee shop. Instead, this is an imperative. This is a command. When you hear of the cross, you are commanded to do this. Believe in the light. Put your trust in Jesus and on his cross. Throw yourself onto that. Believe this is your only hope, that Christ died for you, and it will be well with your soul. Ignore this light, and you'll live in darkness. Thanks, John. You know, this whole idea of expectations, we, we're, we, we mislead and can sometimes deceive people by false expectations about what this walk with Christ is all about, but we need to tell them the truth of what the relationship does. Yeah. yeah, And we need to tell them that forgiveness of sins is found only in the cross of Jesus. He became our sin bearer. And uh, this, is the, this is the beauty of the cross. I mean, the more beautiful we make Christ on the cross, uh, the more we will draw men and women. I mean, this is, this is the power that the cross has. And uh, when we put our confidence not in, you know, our cutesy little ways of devising how we can bring more people in and all that other stuff, but we rather uh, put the emphasis where God puts the emphasis, then we're just prepared to watch God do all the work, and uh, we will be amazed to see the results that actually do come. So that's good news. Thanks so much, John. And join us next week as we continue our series in the book of John, a series called Passion, right here on Back to the Bible Canada where we teach the Bible. This month, we'll be featuring Dr. Neufeld's new series, Passion. This three-week series is focused on the Gospel of John chapters 12 to 14, and will take you through the study of the critical teachings of the Easter season. Join us every weekday beginning March 30th, And remember, you never need to miss an episode. All of our Bible teaching audio and video programs are available online at backtothebible.ca or for your convenience, sign up for the Back to the Bible Canada podcast wherever you listen to podcasts or download our free mobile app. This Easter season journey with Dr. Neufeld into an understanding of Christ's sacrifice and victory 
that perhaps you've never considered before. For more information or to support the ministry of Back to the Bible Canada, call 1-800-663-2425 or visit backtothebible.ca.